Yo, this place is big. We should split up finding Will. Said no one who survived a horror movie ever. Because as you know, in every horror movie, the first rule of survival is never leave your friends. So don't split up if you want to make it to the end. No, don't. Don't split up. Welcome back to the Don't Split Up Horror Podcast. This is episode number 29. We're diving into the vault for a couple of classic movies from the 1980s in honor of our recent review of Stranger Things. We're going to be talking about 1982's The Thing and 1986's The Fly. Both of these are remakes of older horror films, and both of them are regarded to be classics. Uh, But let's see what the gang thinks of them. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I'm Amanda Foresteros. I'm Moza Haiti. And I'm Stacy Silveri. Let's start with 1982's The Thing. This is a John Carpenter movie. It uh, John Carpenter did Halloween in 1978, revolutionized the horror genre. He followed that up in 1980 with The Fog, uh, which did less to revitalize the horror genre, but is still regarded <laughs> as a fun classic movie. And in 1981, he did Escape from New York, starring Kurt Russell, who also appears in this film, The Thing. It also Hashtag stars Wilfred. Awesome. <laughs> it also stars Wilfred Brimley, who I did not even recognize, and Keith David. Uh, this is The Thing is a, a remake of a 1951 film by Christian Nyby, uh, who actually hated Carpenter's version, which uh, we'll talk about more in a minute. Both of them are based on an original short story called Who Goes There. It's from 1938. It's by John W. Campbell, Jr. And just as a fun piece of trivia, 1938 is the same year that Superman debuted in action comics. So interesting that that all kind of was happening at the same time. Uh, The Thing opened on the same day as Blade Runner, and both films bombed at the box office, but today are regarded as sci-fi classics. Um, Producers blamed it on the fact that people had gotten their fill of Aliens a few weeks earlier when E.T. premiered. And uh, Carpenter has said in his interview, interviews that anytime one of his films fails, of course he takes it uh, hard, but this film particularly hurt him when it failed. He was really proud of it, and hopefully he at least appreciates how what a, what a beloved uh, darling it has become for horror fans. So the thing was also a landmark of special effects, which we'll be talking about plenty. Uh, the special effects wizard was Rob Botton, who was an assistant on Star Wars Episode Four back in 1977. Uh, but he went on to do RoboCop, Total Recall, Seven. He worked on Fight Club. Uh, he had a team of 40 people working under him for this film to pull off these effects. Oh, I'm sure. Those effects, man. They were crazy. Spot on. So this is a movie. I loved the thing. I had seen it a bunch on USA, like as a kid growing up. It was one of those that any time I saw that it was coming on, I made sure that I got a chance to watch it. And I don't know why. It's it's about a team of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter an alien creature that can assume the form of anyone it touches. And so, of course, it's, it's basically, a, for the most part, a paranoid psychological thriller because you never know who is the thing. Uh, and I was very excited to rewatch it uh, to get ready for this episode. Uh, it had been probably a couple of decades since I had seen it. Well, in the uncensored version, too, yeah, true. Right? Uh, the not on USA version. <laughs> so uh, I was I was very excited to get to revisit it. What what is your experience with this movie, Mo? This Mine is one you love too, right? Mine is somewhat similar to yours, Jr. Because I've seen this movie easily half a dozen times, if not over ten times, but always on USA. Um, Probably only once or twice from start to finish, but through the collective experiences, I mean, I've seen this movie a lot, uh, but I've never had seen the uncensored version, and that that was a completely different movie. I may or may not have mentioned this before, but I'm just a huge Kurt Russell fan, so that in itself is half my enjoyment of this film. But yeah, this was this was a completely different experience. My experience was no experience. I had no idea what it was. I knew that Kurt Russell was in it, and that's it. I'd, I'd never seen it. I was not as privileged as you all, so I did not have USA growing up because we didn't have cable until I got out of the house. And 
Yeah, I knew nothing. I didn't even want to read the IMDb page. I just went into it completely not knowing anything, and it was awesome. It was so <laughs> good. Like, I loved it. So I, I've seen this once before, um, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, obviously you guys know me, so there's things I didn't enjoy. But, <laughs> um, but overall, I, I really enjoy this movie and like it a lot. Yeah, I talked about you the entire time. I kept saying to JR, I was like, ooh. <laughs> Stacy is not gonna like this. Oh nope. Oh yeah, that's real bad. Oh yeah, oh, Stacy's gonna you be. You should see my show notes for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that opening scene probably was the scariest part for Stacy. Possibly. Yep. Possibly. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the big, uh, the big moments in the film, and and really one of the 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 first really shocking moment is the revelation of the thing, which again for a monster movie they show you what it is, kind of pretty early in the movie, and that's when they put the dog, which we later come to learn is the thing, uh, in the kennel with all of the other dogs. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, it turns, it reveals itself and begins taking over these other animals. Things go horribly, horribly wrong. And then again, like, everyone sees it. You know, again, normally you would say maybe we just as the viewers get to see it, but the, the, the people in... But no, right away, the whole compound sees that this is something monstrous and terrifying and something that they need to deal with. So uh, what did you think of this scene? I feel like this is different than most scary movies when you see the monster, because normally when you see the monster, it's... One, you're not as scared anymore. Takes away, I feel like, a little bit from the movie. This movie is different, though, because it is the thing. It can shapeshift. So even if you see it, that doesn't mean you know what it is for the rest of the movie. So I feel like giving away what the monster is this early kind of worked in its advantage. Doesn't yeah, necessarily almost the opposite. Movies. Like it added to the suspense. Mm -hmm. Because now but you know that that monstrous thing is hiding mm -hmm. inside someone. Mm -hmm. In plain sight. Yeah. yeah. And that's almost scarier than in the darkness. Yeah, I agree. I think it was a super bold move to do that, and whew, it was so creepy. The effects were really, I mean, even for a movie that, that's from the early 80s, it, I thought it held up pretty well. Yeah, I honestly prefer the USA version after watching this because <laughs> holy gruesomeness. Like, I never realized just how insanely gruesome that movie was. Mm -hmm. Well, th this is an argument for why you should use practical effects, right? Because Absolutely. practical effects, it's impossible for them to age uh, because it's real. What you're looking at is in some sense has been created and exists in the film, whereas CGI is always going to look dated after a few years. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, have any of you seen the remake of this that came out in 2011? I think it was. Mm -hmm. I haven't either. It, it's a prequel. It's actually set at the uh, Norwegian settlement. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, th I think I did. Were they maybe like digging something up? I, I haven't seen it, so I, I was just I was gonna say I'm curious to know how that remake, if they use CGI or if they actually stayed true and used the practical effects. I think at a later point in time, especially if we come across another John Carpenter film or something, we're gonna have to do a 10 minute bonus intro. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. and well, I've heard it's pretty terrible, so I'm not I'm excited sure. to watch it, but yeah, uh, we might have to subject ourselves to that for the good of our listeners. And I, speaking of the Norwegians, though, I was going to say that opening scene is still uh, probably one of my favorite parts because I love how it just slowly leads into crazy. I mean, it starts out with that helicopter coming in, seems somewhat natural, they're in Antarctica, um, then they see that wolf or dog and they start shooting at it again, you're like, all right, maybe that's their entertainment out here. They, they've got nothing else to do but shoot at animals from helicopters. But then it oh, becomes like this obsession, and you're like, man, this guy really wants to kill this animal. <laughs> like, what, what is going on? All the way to the point where they land in that camp, and they've got grenades, they blow themselves up, they like, completely don't care about their own lives. I mean, they're not talking to anyone. Like, you, you, it really sets the tone for the movie. You're like, what the hell is going on? Like, I, I love that whole opening scene. Sorry, Stace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the dog doesn't get killed, right? Yeah, no, he makes it. But it's not nearly a dog, so I don't feel so bad for it. You <laughs> just felt bad for all the other ones. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, another scene that I was really struck by was the autopsy scene, where they, they bring in the uh, burned Norwegian that they discover, uh, and as he begins to thaw, it turns out that he was not, in fact, Norwegian. He was, he was a thing. 
And and that's when the doctor, Wilford Brimley's character, really figures out what what this is. Uh, they apparently used real animal organs for that. So again, practical effects, they were real organs. And everyone got sick except except for Wilfred Brimley because he used to be a, a real actual cowboy. And so I actually had to do a lot of that kind of like gutting and cleaning animals and those kinds of things. That's so fascinating. I don't believe that I Kurt Russell it. got sick. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Russell would never do that to you. Uh, Mr. No. Russell, we're big fans. We'd love to have you on the show and verify whether you uh, these reports are true. Please come defend your shotgun. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, I, it's a great example of how much horror they were able to induce through using a real, again, real in quotation marks, an actual physical, you know, corpse that was made to look so grotesque and gruesome instead of something computer generated. Uh, you felt... I think the visceral terror of, you know, the doctor is so casually pulling body parts out and saying, yeah, they're all real, you know, it's a real liver, real stomach, real lungs, and you're just like, oh, so gross, like, oh. Now, was this Carpenter's first experience with real organs? Has he always been a practical effect type person? Because, like, when it comes to Sam Raimi, I expect that, but Carpenter, it didn't ring a bell for that type of... Well, I mean, you know, Halloween doesn't have any CGI in it. Same with I, I, I haven't seen The Fog since you know a billion years ago on USA. Also, but I don't remember there. Be, I think it was like real dry ice. So I think that Carpenter uh, has pretty traditionally used as many practical effects as he can. It definitely sets a tone. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, as we go through this, get further into this podcast, I'm finding that. Initially, I liked the CGI, but now I like the real practical effects. It just makes the movie that much more like gritty and intense and enjoyable, I think. That's why Ash vs. the Evil Dead is so amazing. I mean, for a <laughs> horror comedy, I'm legitimately scared once in a, like minimum once an episode, and half of it is the effects. They're just horrifying. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the blood test scene. We're going to draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. The blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Uh, this is the scene that sold Carpenter on wanting to make the movie when he read this scene. And, you know, at this point in the movie, they know what they're dealing with. A couple of people have been revealed as things. And the doctor had an idea for testing blood, but then whoever the thing was actually destroyed uh, the blood supply so that they couldn't do that. After the the head spider scene, which I'm going to go ahead and claim as my best now, uh, uh, McCready figures out that every part of the thing is an independently alive kind of an organism. And so if they pull blood out and then burn the blood, it will reveal itself as the thing. And so it's a really tense scene because they've all got the, you know, they've all got them late, their blood samples labeled. And it's not like they did it really surgically. Like he literally just cuts their thumbs open, squeezes. I mean, it's, it's very uh, roughshod, right? When he's, when he's firing the needle in the flamethrower, you know, and it's just like every single thing, it takes so much time and they just sit on it. Like they don't cut away. They don't, rush it and so you the tension just keeps building and building and as they keep eliminating people that it could possibly be and you are seeing that there's you know fewer and fewer and fewer possibilities yeah it just keeps getting worse and worse until the big reveal he kills the one guy before he even gets around to testing i mean childs is testing him saying you don't have the guts to you know kill me and he's like don't i and he's like well maybe you do and then the other guy steps <laughs> up he shoots him like there, there's so many different aspects going on in that scene it's not just mm-hmm. You know about testing to see who is this trust. I mean, it, that whole scene was awesome. Well, and then as the payoff, when the thing reveals itself, everyone's tied up and can't defend themselves, and it's just like utter chaos. Um, and you're just like, oh my gosh, get them out of there! Are you serious right now? Childs oh. and the old leader just jumping around in their chair. That was classic. 
Oh, man. Uh, I think this scene is a great example of just how to, con- how to craft horror, right? Because there's so mm-hmm. much... There's so much implication and dread and buildup, and then it does pay off really, really, really well. But the the whole first half of the scene, where there's no gore, there's no monster, uh, at least you know explicitly revealed, uh, is is just as scary as what comes after when when the thing is revealed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I thought it was just brilliant. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask. Um, do you think that the things know their things? I wondered that too. All the time. I don't know. See, I thought about that as well. I feel like they I don't think they do. I think the thing knows it's a thing. I don't think right. the human knows it's been infected. Thing. Like there's that question of like cuz like when they're testing the blood and several of the guys when they see their blood is fine, they like sigh relief. Yeah. So I'm, I may, yeah, maybe, maybe the humans don't know if they've been infected or not. Yeah. Maybe Except it's kind of like a possession thing, where you don't necessarily know you're possessed, but you know maybe like there's like blackouts or things you don't remember. They left doing. it wonderfully ambiguous, and I'm, yeah, I'm thinking they did that for a reason, but it, right. it, it made that scene so much more powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the old commander, who turns out to have been a thing knew enough to destroy the blood, right? Yeah. Like, he, he knew enough that he was a thing that he needed to destroy the blood. Obviously, the doctor, once they've locked him in there, you know, he immediately, it seems like immediately after they leave him in there, starts digging and tunneling and building a spaceship. So, um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting that some of the human characters like McGreedy are like, I'm not saying, I know I'm human. And then others of them didn't really seem to know. It seemed like they had some anxiety about but it. But you were still even questioning it. Like, is McCready actually... But he wasn't, right. No, That's what I know, I'm saying. But, yeah. but we still, as the audience, were, were skeptical of him. I was, no, and even until I very... Well, I knew you wouldn't, because he's Kurt <laughs> Russell. But... He can't be affected. <laughs> Just by nature, he's automatically immune? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and do best worst. Uh, what was your favorite part of this movie? I'm going to go ahead and go first and claim the head spider. I thought that was awesome and horrifying and just, like, I've so never gross. been more revolted until I later watched The Fly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. It was an awesome scare. Like, it was so disgusting and horrifying. Yeah, as a person who hates spiders and random head creatures, it was terrifying. <laughs> You've long been on record saying you hate random head creatures. Uh, my best, I think, was probably the blood test scene. I, like we had just discussed, I liked how they, the first half wasn't just like in-your-face horror, the, the build-up and the anxiety that you got. I feel like you don't get in newer horror movies, so I really enjoyed like the play on your feelings and the build-up to get that scare. I don't want to steal, the, the blood test scene is phenomenal, so I think that's a, a given. I mean, that would probably be my first and foremost, um, but as a secondary, I I like when they find the underground tunnel and the self-made spaceship and everything, and it kind of gives you, uh, you're questioning the motives of the thing, and, you know, is it just trying to get back home, or is it just trying to escape these people? I, I like. Or is it trying scene. to fly to a more habitable area? Exactly, yeah, you know, so uh, I thought that was pretty cool. I think for me, I mean, obviously there are several scenes that I loved, but I also appreciate that the cast was diverse and that there was an African-American man that made it to the end. Like, that obviously doesn't happen very often in horror. Especially in early horror. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I thought it was I thought it was really, really well done. Uh, I loved all of the comedy, you know, the, the fact that these guys have been living together for a while. And, anyway, I... I liked a lot of that, but I know that this is a little bit prior to the head spider, but when they are um, trying to shock the head spider guy back, and all of a sudden <laughs> the the paddles go through his chest, and you're like, oh, oh no, what's that? And then he gets his hands cut off. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, God. Oh, my. Oh, it's so grotesque. <laughs> so intense. I mean, Jared just kept looking over at me, both in the thing and the fly, and I mean, my mouth was just gaping the entire time, like, oh! Oh, no! Every time I thought it couldn't get worse, they escalated things. Like, I have never been proven wrong so many times in one sitting. 
Uh, okay, do you have a worst for this film? Is there uh, something that you didn't like or something you thought just didn't work for you? I'm still so curious as to why there were so many flamethrowers on this expedition. So many flamethrowers. <laughs> so readily available, too. Like, why does everyone, like, it was almost like they were the Ghostbusters and that was their, like, pack. Like, I mean, was... you live in a place that's made out of ice. That's not a terrible idea to have. But they weren't living in ice caves. They didn't create their dwellings with flamethrowers. No, but, like, everything around no... them is made out of ice. So they just—I mean—is the ice alive? They—they they never. Oh no! What they but were you can melt that... it with fire. I what? You mean is the ice alive? Why? why Maybe. I, I don't know. I never saw that. <laughs> I just thought there was a lot of flamethrowers going around. Open with them using the flamethrowers on some ice, and be like, "Oh yeah, they use these daily." Now I know why there's lots of flamethrowers. Do you even need backstory for flamethrowers, Mo? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me it. It really can't be a worse because I do, and Mo, you're probably going to hate me for this, but I, I love Kurt Russell. I think he is so hardcore. I'm losing you. Maybe so we tough. should just cut. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but I think it, it's just so funny. His character, and I think that it plays to his character, but his it was a little obnoxious that every time he's like, I don't care if it's 20 below, I'm going to go and get and do the stuff. Like he was the typical type A or... Alpha male, alpha male, like, very much, I'm going to do whatever, and I'm going to tell you how this is, and I'm going to tie you all up, even though I know I'm the, I don't know. I mean, it it worked, again, it worked super well for the movie, but I was just like, oh, come on. Well, that's an interesting observation. I mean, there's, there's, you can read this film in a way that Kurt Russell is kind of a villain by the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, he did murder a man. He yeah. Did. He did. And I like that child calls him out for that immediately. He's like, so you just murdered him, right? <laughs> Kurt Russell just gives him a look like, yeah, it could be you next. Keep talking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, beyond all of the, the, the horror of the body and, you know, your body may not be your own and all of that, which I've obviously, you know, I find particularly horrifying. There's also that, like, what does fear do to us as humans? You know, and how it, how, in what ways does fear bring out the worst in us? Well, uh, right, because at that point in time, Russell has basically become the Norwegians. Like, it, the film starts out, and they can't explain the crazy that's going on with those Norwegian scientists or right. Norwegians. And then by that point in time, they are fully, <laughs> like, transitioning. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, again, if you've seen the film before especially, you, as they're walking through the ruins of the Norwegian base, you know this is all foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like, uh, you know, they're they're looking into their own future. So, yeah, um, you know, Good for thing. me, this this is like such a minor nit, and I would prefer it to any other way of delivering this information. But they all got on board with the like alien shapeshifter stuff like real quick. They sure did. You yeah. know, like yeah. the doctor looks at this corpse and he's like, "Oh, we're dealing with an alien shapeshifter," and everyone's like, "Yep." <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, now they all had seen the dog thing, uh, and they had been to the Norwegian base and seen the stuff cut out of the. So I mean, they they seeded some stuff in there, and I would I can't again I can't overemphasize. I'm glad that they did not find some videotape or a YouTube video like in that terrible movie The Darkness. <laughs> it was like for millions of years aliens have been frozen in the Antarctic. Be careful not to dig too deep, or you might get taken over by a thing. Like, I'm so glad we didn't get some kind of clunky exposition dump. And I would much rather, when I'm watching a horror movie about an alien shapeshifter, that everyone's just like, okay, alien shapeshifter, I'm on board, now let's do it. But, I was going to say, I found it refreshing that you didn't have that one yes, guy all the way saying. up until the end when he was killed saying, there's no alien shapeshifters. Right, right. Yeah, like I said, the, it, it, it's, it was handled about the best way it could be handled, but... Um, when I step back from the movie and kind of look at look at that, that is one that is one thing that like we just know how people are in real life, and we know that there would be skeptics or people freaking out, yeah. like having yeah, just you know, having denial. breakdowns. So like, I don't know, man. I can't do this. I'm out. I'm well, gonna... uh, Windows was kind of like that, kind right? Of, yeah. Um, so again, I I'm 100% okay with this. It is like a super minor nit, but if I had to pick a nit, that's the nit I would pick. So. Stacy, do we even need to ask? Um, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, you know where my heart lies when I watch movies, and it's with the animals. <laughs> Those poor, poor. 
pesky dogs. So just to recap before we move on to the fly, everyone's best was Kurt Russell, and everyone's <laughs> worst was not Kurt Russell. I think that's what we all said, yeah. yeah. Okay, perfect. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, do you recommend this movie? Oh, totally. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, all right. There you go. Four thumbs up from the Don't Split Up game. Awesome. All right, any final thoughts on the thing? More Russell. <laughs> well, let's then talk about a movie that actually features no Kurt Russell. <laughs> very, very sad. It's unrelenting every day there. It changes. Every time I look in the mirror, someone different, someone hideous, repulsive. What happened? I know an old lady who swallowed a fly, perhaps she'll die. The Fly came out in 1986. It was directed by David Cronenberg. And it stars Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis as Seth and Veronica. Uh, this might interest you, Mo. Michael Keaton was originally offered the Seth Brundle character. I uh, love Keaton, but I am glad that he was not in this role. <laughs> Why? Because you could never uh, see him the same again. No. And, I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> no. I'm glad it wasn't Keaton. But, I mean, specifically not because you don't think Keaton would do a good job because this this was a traumatic film for you? Is that a trick question? Keaton never does a bad job. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just didn't want to see him in this film because, ugh. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Goldblum uh, got the part and then was dating Gina Davis at the time. And Cronenberg uh, actually had some reservations about casting a real-life couple, but he went ahead and did it. And so that's how that's how Gina Davis got the part. Um, the Fly is also based on an older film, uh, a Vincent Price film from 1958 that was directed by Kurt Neumann, who is Norwegian. Oh, huh. nice. All right. Tie it so. all in. <laughs> uh, so just in general, again, this is a movie I had seen a handful of times, mainly on USA, and it was another one that held a warm place in my heart, but I have probably not seen it in 20 years. And so it was another one I was really looking forward to revisiting, and I was not disappointed. I thought it held up really well. Again, tons of very practical special effects, incredibly disgusting, and horrifying on a surface level, but also on some pretty profound ideological levels. I think there's some really scary stuff going on in this movie. What, what did you all? What was your experience with the, with the fly? I also had... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stace. No, you're good. You go. I was just going to say, much like The Thing, I knew nothing about The Fly, only that Jeff Goldblum was in it, and I knew that he somehow turned into a fly. Uh, But I did not know what I was getting myself into. I'd never seen it on USA. I didn't look up even what he was going to look like as a spoiler or anything, and whew, this film... (laughs) Yeah. Also held together super, super well and was just... <sighs> this um, film disgusts me. Yeah. And I had only ever seen the USA version. And I remember the transition being much quicker. So re-watching it now, I don't know how many years later, and getting the uncensored version, I, I like it was hard for me to get into the film. I was so disgusted by about halfway. Yeah, through. it's like, so grotesque. So grotesque. Like mm. over the... Like in your... Like it... I, we've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan of the gory um, films like Saws, etc. Um, and this, like, it, it was so in your face. It remind like it was. I know that wasn't truly their purpose, but it reminded me of those films, and I just couldn't get past it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amanda called it torture porn, also, and I yeah. said it's not torture porn. It, it's not, but yeah, it's just so gruesome. It gives me that that same kind uh, of feeling. Like, exactly. Ooh. Like, I, I just had a hard time focusing on anything else because I was like, this is revolting. Um, so I hadn't seen this before. Um, all at I really all? Knew was kind of, no, not at all. Like, never heard of it, nothing. Um, all I really knew was what we had, like, briefly discussed, like, making sure, like, we got the, the remake or the right movie and kind of who was in it. Um, yeah, I struggled with this one for multiple reasons. Uh, it was gross. First off, I did not like any of that. Again, the animal thing. Like, where do you find this baboon? Like, where do you find these baboons? Like, they just pop up out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. They were apparently um, siblings. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah, maybe you got them. Any... Maybe you got them from a, a baboon mother. Oh. <laughs> Even worse. Way to make it worse, dear. Right. 
I um yeah I don't I wasn't a fan of this movie in any way shape or form. The only thing that I really liked were the the effects. I thought those were spot on and they did a great job. But this movie really did nothing for me. Like you didn't like it, or not it was just super gross. I did not like this movie at all. Interesting. Like, mm-hmm. Me neither. I just the sto- I don't know. I just like felt like it wasn't put together well. The story. I thought was kind of cliche and annoying. Like, I just, I, like, had mentioned to Mo, this is probably the worst movie that I think we've had to watch so far. Hands Whoa. Down. I mean, you watched uh, The Gallows. Those are strong yeah, I words. Said that, I also said that was a bold statement. Um, yeah, no, this, yeah, I just, I don't know what it, it just didn't, none of it worked for me. I mean, besides the special effects, that's about the only thing that I liked so, about this movie. So, let me ask this. Um, I guess for both of you, since, since you didn't like this movie, did... Seth Brundle's character not work for you? Did the romance between him and Ronnie not work for you? What? Yeah, no. I didn't. I I liked him at first, and then when he, like, went into the the teleporter and then became Brundle, I didn't, I did not like him any longer after that. Their romance, I felt like she was just doing it to get a story, and I just felt like it was very forced and fake. Well, it started with her wanting to get the story. The relationship worked for me. She was clearly attracted to bad people. Um, she started to like him after doing the story because she's like, oh, he is a cute, good person. And then he reverts to what she's used to, so she kind of sticks it out anyways. Like, that all worked. Um, it was just, it, it wasn't horrifying in the traditional horror sense. It was just this slow mutation and him losing himself, which is probably more up your alley of horror than mine, JR. Um, but. It was just so in-your-face grotesque and so prolonged. Uh, having, from what I remembered, like I said, I mentioned this earlier, I thought the mutation and the transformation happened much quicker. Um, this seems so drawn out that I just, I lost interest. I was grossed out. Like, it wasn't that the movie itself failed. It's just not my cup of tea. Man, I did not think it was slow at all. I thought it, that it was pitch perfect, and they handled they handled that it is a slow process. He wasn't just all of a sudden transitioned into this fly. Like he, oh man, I thought it was so, I thought it was super, super well done. I bought every single aspect of it, hook, line, and sinker. It also, you know, an hour and a half of Jeff Goldblum's speech gets a little old, so. (laughs) Well, and I love Goldblum. I was like, oh, this is the most Goldblum of all Goldblum movies. Like he, yeah. No, I like so, him in small witty doses like Jurassic Park. Like Jurassic this was Park, this yeah. was a little too much. One of the one of the themes that this film touches on is the weakness of human flesh. Uh, you know, both in the beginning of the film, both of the main characters have clear ambitions. You know, Goldblum wants or uh, sorry, Seth Brundle wants to transform human history with his with his invention of teleportation. And uh, Veronica actually says, you know, I'm not getting any younger, and she's not referring to wanting to get married and have children, which is sort of stereotypically what women mean when they say that. She's referring to making it as a journalist. Yeah, and so when he offers her the chance of a lifetime to see the invention that changes history, that's what she says, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And, and so she, both of them, their relationship begins with like this desire to achieve professionally, but it quickly turns into a conversation about flesh. Even on the way to his lab, he's getting car sick, and then later in the movie, when he reveals that he's working on teleportation, uh, Ronnie observes that he'll never have to get car sick again because you know that's a weakness of flesh that this technology is helping him to overcome. Uh, there's this whole conversation when he's trying to teleport organic matter and he can't. Uh, after he kills the first baboon, right? And he says it's that the machine doesn't understand the flesh because Brundle can't understand the flesh because the machine only does what Brundle tells it to do. And so after Mm -hmm. they then have a relationship, somehow he now understands the flesh. And so then he, whatever whatever he has learned from his (laughs) sexual relationship with Ronnie, he goes and tells the computer, I don't want to read that programming notes, Um, but now all of a sudden the computer can understand the flesh. And then the other thing I thought was so interesting was it's actually the breakdown of their relationship that drives him to experiment on himself. Uh, And it's not even really the breakdown. It's just his perceived breakdown, right? He thinks she's going back to madness. And so it's his insecurity and his anxiety over the the fleshy relationship that he's cultivated 
that drives his anxiety to jump into the telepod and experiment on himself and do it while he's drunk so he doesn't notice the fly that even the baboon notices, Mm -hmm. right? And (laughs) so I I thought that was, again, given what happens to him and given that we're witnessing sort of a degradation of his flesh, uh, I thought it was a really interesting commentary on the limits of technology, on why we invent, you know, all of these kinds of things that, that ends up being a really tragic morality tale. You know, be careful what you wish for sort of thing. Well, and especially I mean, because it seemed like it was so great at the beginning. You know, he had his super strength and was all of a sudden this gymnast that could just, like, do whatever he wanted, basically, and eat whatever he wanted and all of those kinds of things. The way he talked about himself and, like, he was sort of a demigod more than anything. And then it went horribly wrong. Horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Separate. The one thing I did kind of enjoy, although I don't know how intentional it was, it, it was somewhat socially progressive, maybe, because for all of its 70s, 80s sexism, like, you know, in the corporate world and the way her boss slash ex was always just, re, you know, uh, referring to her as basically an object, uh, then at the end you've got her, I mean, it starts with her being more career-focused than mother-focused. She comes out and she's demanding an abortion at the end. It was very... Uh, socially, I don't know, um, at war with itself. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> there was points I, of times where I was like, this is extra sexist, you know, classic 80s. And then there was other times where I, I did not see that coming. So I didn't feel like the way they were portraying Stathis was good. Like, I felt like the way that he was treating her, the film expected you to feel bad about. Do you disagree? Yeah. No, I agree. I guess for for me that I would say that that was also progressive. That was saying like here's what happens in the workplace. It's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas whereas you have some other films from the 70s and 80s where like women are just called dames and they're there as eye candy and they don't have any volition or any choice in the film. Um, where that that wasn't the case for Ronnie. Like she in many ways kind of becomes the main character. Yeah, and she does stand up for herself, which is different from, you know, your typical where they just kind of put their eyes down and deal with it. Um, and to your point, Mo, I mean, it's clear, like, as much as she does stand up to Stathis, like, she says, give me your key, and he's like, nah, I'm going to keep it, and she's like, okay. Yeah. So there, and, and so, again, that that sets up how she stays with Brundle later. Uh, yeah. and, and so it's interesting. Brundle calls what's happening to him a disease, but... I don't, like, I think it was much more of, like, an addiction. Like, yes. the way he is, his body is breaking down, and he's becoming a different person, and obviously he's not continuing to, like, go in the telepod and teleport himself or something like that, but, um, you know, he just go he gets further and further and further gone, and again, she stays with him. Well, and part of that, how much of that was that jealousy that was driving him? Because previously he was this science nerd who self-confessed, hey, you know, I don't get out, I don't talk to a lot of people, so when I do, I have a tendency to just talk about my work, like, you got to understand where I'm coming from, and then all of a sudden, he has this complete change, you know, he's strong, he's capable, he's confident, Um, and yeah, I think it is kind of an addiction, because it's not till he finally can no longer deny that he's changing for the worse, that he reverts back to his old personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole scene where he yeah. talks about how insects don't have politics. Insects don't have politics. They're very brutal. No compassion. No compromise. We can't trust the insect. I'd like to become the first insect politician. You see, I'd like to, uh, but oh, I'm afraid. Um, I don't know what you're trying to say. I'm saying. I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over. And the insect is awake. No, sir. I'm saying... I'll hurt you if you stay. And what he's saying there is 
they just do whatever they want. And so if you stay, I'll hurt you. Right? And he's like, he's like, please leave. Please go away. Please never come back because I'm about to lose control. And then he does, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he does lose control. And he, any love he had for her is completely lost in this desire to fix himself. And he's willing to murder her and their baby in the end to save himself. Mm-hmm. So that's like, I don't know, that's like the classic abuser mentality where it's like, I love you. But love means I only care about what you can do for me. And your mm-hmm. wants, your desires, they don't exist. I don't care about them. I think I think that's partly why I had an issue with, like, this movie. Like, their relationship just, I, I didn't like the way it was going. I hated that she stayed. And I get that you can't always, like, in those situations, it's not that simple. It's like an outsider looking in. Well, yeah, but when just, would you leave, right? I mean, that's the question. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not if you're lover is turning into an insect, but like in an addiction situation, mm-hmm. when like when do you give up hope and when do you stay and stick it out because this is like mm-hmm. the worst of the for better and for worse. Right. Yeah. Where is it bad enough to where you say, okay, this is, we have, we have crossed the point of no return, I'm out, I can't do it anymore. Is it mm-hmm. when someone finally lays hands on you? Is it when, I mean, who knows? Well, and I think her character has an issue with setting those boundaries in the first place. So she's, she's, we've already seen that she's going to stay longer than she probably should. And I think that's the whole point of her relationship with her ex is to say that, you know, she's, she's going to continue well past when it's safe for her to be there. Right. And he was a creepy person. I would uh, just like sure. to point out like. Before all of this. Oh, stat- status. Yeah. Yeah, through the whole movie, like, that guy's a creep, and she just, like, (laughs) feeds into it, like, she doesn't have anybody else to talk to, like, so she turns to this guy, like, oh my god, like, Even at the very end, he's still making those snide little comments, like, well, can I just have your body then? (laughs) Like, yeah, completely inappropriate, and in the wrong relationship, please, thank you, Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so there's one one thing I thought was interesting, uh, and this goes into the question I have for you. Um, there is a deleted scene that you can find on YouTube. We'll link to it in the show notes at don'tsplitup.com. Uh, it's called the monkey cat scene. And uh, Brundle takes... The, this is when, after Brundle has become the Brundle fly, and he's in the midst of his transformation, and he's trying to figure out if he can unsplice himself from uh, the fly. And so in order to do that, he's experimenting. And so he, he takes the, the baboon that he successfully teleported, and the, a, he finds a cat, I'm assuming, in the alley uh, mm-hmm. behind his apartment. And he fuses them together. And then he, I'm assuming the end game was he was going to see if he could unfuse them. But the horrific monkey-cat hybrid attacks him, and he beats it to death with an iron pipe. Uh, this this was cut because it's it's actually like about halfway through the film that w- that the monkey cat scene was supposed to 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 be played, and uh, one of the producers, Stuart Cornfield, said they cut it after a screening because after that scene, people lost all sympathy for Brundle. And the quote he said was, "If you beat an animal to death, even a monkey cat, your audience is not going to be interested in your problems anymore." <laughs> So my question is, when in the film did you quit rooting for Brundle? Um, I quit rooting for him pretty early on. Um, almost like when he like was like physically fit and strong and like the gymnast, and then when they were like going out and he just like kept putting like the sugar in his coffee, like that whole like change in his his personality immediately like turned me off from him and I was like, okay, well this guy's an asshole now. He went from a nice guy to an asshole, and I'm just kind of over over him. <laughs> so even when he was trying to figure out how to fix himself, you weren't rooting for him to fix himself? I mean, a little bit, but no, I was I was definitely over him. I think for me that was that was definitely the beginning of the end, like when he brings the girl home, when he does the ridiculous uh, arm wrestling contest and just annihilates that poor guy's arm. I was like, okay, yeah, this is... I mean, so so that was definitely the start of it, but I don't know. I was even still rooting for him, like the really gross mirror scene where he talks about how he has 
he opens up the bathroom mirror and he has all these little pieces of himself, even though that's utterly disgusting. I was like, man, he's he's still a scientist. He's still trying to preserve himself. He still has a little bit of humor, even though he looks horrific. Um, yeah, I, I think had I seen the monkey cat scene within the film and not afterwards, I probably also would have stopped rooting for him then because that really made him a monster, even more of a monster than he had already become. I um I don't know if it was because I'd seen it before and just knew what the outcome was, but I was never invested in his character. Like I never thought there was a redemption chance. Um, so I, but I think that was my past experience because I knew I knew what the outcome was. So from even the begin, like from the moment the hair sprouted out of his back, I was like, oh buddy, this is not gonna work out for you. <laughs> and you weren't there wasn't a you weren't ever rooting for him. No, no. Actually, Gina Davis's character was my favorite and the one that I was rooting for. Uh, I think for me, it was it was the moment uh, when he busts in the hospital, um, because you know at that point what he's like that he's abducting her to take her to to transform her in some way, mm-hmm. and you know because you, he warned her. He said, "I'm almost gone." The next, you know, you have to leave or I'll hurt you, and you know, so you know at this point he's he's coming to hurt her, and so that that was when I knew that Brundle was gone, and it was only Brundle fly, and so that was that was the moment when it was like, okay, this can only end in tragedy, in, in either way, either he kills her or someone kills him, right? So yeah. so I knew at that point that he was kind of past the point of no return. I also feel like um, if initially like I lost faith or like. I stopped worrying about him pretty early on, but when he tried to like force her into like the teleportation device and then force the other girl, that was another like red flag for me. Like, oh, I, you know, like he so is pretty self-involved and not concerned about the others. Like, what I thought was interesting about all of that is that he at that point was convinced, and it was a totally a, a delusion, right? Everyone else but him could see there's something wrong with him. And he was convinced that that just the act of being teleported from one pod to the other made me better. And so he's trying to get someone else to repeat his experiment and become better with him. And the reality is if he had gotten either one of those women into a telepod and teleported them, nothing would have happened. Like they would have been fine. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. it worked and they didn't get a fly in there with them. And so... It was interesting to me that it's again if you if you look at it on the addiction timeline, it's that like denial phase where you're convinced everything's fine and you're destroying your life and everyone but you can see it. And then because because when when you have the time jump, right, when it goes to a month later and he she sees him again, or he calls her and asks her to come in, he's a completely different person. He's back yeah, he's... to being much more of like nice brundle. Because rock bottom. Yeah, because he's finally recognized there is something wrong with me. Like I am not okay. The pod did something bad to me. Um, so, so I was. First step. Yeah, I was with you, Stacy. Like while he's doing all, of course it's terrible, right? But it was also like he was in a delusion. Like he hadn't admitted what we all know was wrong. And so then when it when it jumped back and he's like back like he's like okay now I admit there's a problem now I'm trying to fix it. I was rooting for him. I was like I want. Like, even though I knew it wasn't going to happen, I was like, I want him to fix this. Like, I want, I liked him, and I'm sad for him, and I want him and Ronnie to work out, and, and I want him to fix this problem and get back to where they were, where, you know, at the beginning of the movie. Was the best scare in the movie? I don't know if it's necessarily a scare, but a scene that I thought worked really well was like, the bathroom scenes when he's in there and he's, like, slowly, like, deteriorating and, like, his fingernails are popping off. Um, Yeah, that scene was intense. I would definitely say it's the birthing scene that happened was very scarring. (laughs) Very, very scarring. It's hard to even articulate the dream birthing situation. Oh, sure. It was a nightmare, but it was... No, rough. I agree with you. It that was, was the... so rough. I mean, Jr. was watching me like halfway through, and I was just like, "No, oh my, oh yeah." Same as before. I just, 
I was not expecting that. And then when it was like a maggot thing, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm out. Oh, oh, it's so bad. So yeah, that was like the final straw for me. I was like, <laughs> and I, I can't. <laughs> you can't even. Hero. What about you, Mo? That that was best and worst. Like that was so <laughs> disgusting. Um, it was like you're trying to close your eyes. You don't want it to be what it is, and then it was. It was. It really just sums up how perfectly grotesque this movie was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I my I had a couple that I thought were both great. Um, the first time he vomits on his food. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh yeah. See? And then yeah. has a Goldblum one-liner outdoors. Oh, that, yeah. That's disgusting. Uh, because again, it's like, it's like everyone knows basic facts about flies, right? I mean, just like, it, I remember as a kid, someone being like, flies vomit on their food, so don't let them land on your food, because that means you're eating fly puke, you know? So it's like, yeah, like, you know that, but you're not thinking about that when you're watching it. And so then when he sits down to eat, and he's just like, excuse me, <laughs> like, of course, and horrible, like, so horrible. <laughs> And then, of course, how they pay that off at the end of the film when Stathis is in there in the in the final confrontation. Um, it was so gross. And then I, like, when you finally see the full Brundle fly, like, at the very end, so, so gross and scary and awesome. I did like, as he transformed more and more, how his head kept shaking a little bit. Like, he was doing this little fly tick. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Which was that, so but... good. Yeah, it was yeah. very appropriate. I was like, oh, that is a fly thing. Like, they're so skittish, and they just jump around. Yeah. So, what about your worst? What was the a part of the film that just didn't really work for you? All the gore. Like, his whole slow transformation and his disgusting body, and it was just, this is... I don't like that type of grotesque. Like, I would much rather be literally terrified and scream. I would bring back the red-faced demon. Like, <laughs> I'm when more say, willing to just say, scream when you say, when you say you'd rather have that, do you mean you find it more disturbing? Um, like, that's just a different type of scare. Like, this is just hard for me to watch. Like, it's just, it's so gross. It's not scary. I don't have nightmares from it. It doesn't come up later. It's just while I'm watching it, I'm wondering, why am I watching this? Okay. Whereas, like, with an actual horror film, it's scary. And then later on, I'm still scared. And I don't know why I prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Stacy, what about you? Um, so, obviously, like, the animal thing is a given... Um, the, watching the deleted scene, I wasn't happy about that. Um, oh, we heard the your relation- reactions. <laughs> <laughs> um, the relationship between Ronnie and Brundle, the relationship between her and the ex-boyfriend. Um, it just, it just. So the movie didn't reason, work for you. <laughs> yeah, it just, it didn't work. It didn't come together for me. But you've known people that have been in relationships like that, correct? Or at least, or yeah. Yeah, so so it wasn't unrealistic. It was no, just you didn't like watching it. Yeah, I don't want to sound like this probably is going to come off like really harsh, but I, I after like a certain point, like I just don't have sympathy for somebody who like keeps putting themselves in that situation. Like you, you know, like I get at first you're in denial and you're kind of blind to it, but at a certain point you you come to a realization of what's happening, but you still like sign up for it anyways. I just, I just, I don't I, know. That, that I kind of side with JR on this one, though, just because if it is someone you loved and cared about, um, and especially towards the end when she's found out she's pregnant, like, how far are you willing to go to try to help someone you care about? Mm-hmm. Oh, see, if I was her and I found out I was pregnant, like, I would have cut my lot, like, I'm never talking to you again. Like, that that would have been, like, the nice. dead-end giveaway. Like, I'm done with this situation. Cold as ice. You say That's that. Stacy. Cold as ice. Well, my worst was, and again, it's it's a nitpick, but I didn't like the one month time jump mm-hmm. uh, because there was a lot of emotional story that happened in that one month that we didn't see. Um, and again, it worked. I understood what happened, and I think that that's where the monkey cat scene was set was in that one month, and so I I think there was more more of him coming to grips with what has happened and realizing that there's not much he can do about it. So I get that we just kind of skipped all of that, but I would have, I don't know, I liked his journey, his arc. 
I mean, it was tragic and horrible, but I thought it was well done. And so I just, I, I wouldn't have minded seeing a little bit more of that. Yeah, my, I was going to say my only, <laughs> my only uh, issue, and this is just because I would have not reacted this way, was as Veronica's character decides to get in a car with a stranger, go to their their lab slash home that has a padlock on the outside of it and decides, <laughs> yeah, I'm into this. This is, you know, he's harmless. I, I've got this. He's going to show me his cappuccino machine. And I'm like, he's going to show you more than his cappuccino machine, definitely. And I'm, I, I never in a million years could imagine doing something like that. The 80s uh, were a simpler time. But 80s were well, definitely a simpler time. And that goes back to, like, the the original reporter, you know, the Lois Lane, like, anything for the story. Sure, so. sure. And, again, I know that that's, like, a little teeny tiny thing, but at the very beginning I was like, It is Oop. creepy, like, yeah, that's putting... Very bad idea. Bad, bad. And she was like, oh, you know, she was even commenting on how sketchy the area <laughs> was and how, you know, not nice as apartment going it's up to the apartment the was and everything, and I was like... Oh yeah, this is this is a terrible idea. Abort. Abort. I wonder, you know, I wonder what it would have how that how that scene played in the eighties. Because mm-hmm. obviously today it plays as like super rapey. Right. You know, and you're like real creeped out by it. And I, I just wonder if it played like that in the eighties or if because we have so much more conversation about rape culture and violence against women, if like we read that scene differently today. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. Um, maybe someone who saw the film in the theaters in nineteen eighty six could tell us how Let they us read that film. Mm-hmm. How they read that scene. Uh, okay, we're about out of time. Would you recommend The Fly? Absolutely. Nope. Absolutely not. <laughs> I would. I thought this room was great and terrifying and raised some interesting moral questions. Mm-hmm. For sure. So there you go. We're split down the middle on this one. I find it interesting that you both wholeheartedly recommended The Thing but do not recommend The Fly. Uh, hashtag Russell. <laughs> Stacey, what about you? What's the difference for you? I just I I feel like it comes down to the way the movie was put together. I feel like the thing every like the moving parts work better together. It comes together as a whole, where in the fly, the moving parts don't necessarily come together as a whole for me personally. Um and I don't even think the moving parts in the thing or the fly, I mean, work separately well. Hmm. Which but, which but, movie did you guys watch first? I watched The Fly first because I've seen The Thing, so, and then I just kind of recapped on The Thing. Huh. I watched The Thing first because I had to deal with Stacy's text messages through The Fly, and I was like, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Mo, for you, because I felt like the horror in these two movies, especially with regard to the gore and the paranoia, was pretty similar. So what, like, what was different for you? Was it just that you don't like Goldblum and you do like Russell? Um, that's a big part of it. I Goldblum in large doses is tough for me to handle. Um, but even that apart, I like the setting of the thing better. Uh, the gore in the thing, I was not a fan of. Like I said, I, I'm used to the USA version, which I now appreciate much more. Um, and it was kind of both in your face. Uh, but the fly was just this prolonged journey of one person, whereas the thing kind of speaks to the type of, I don't know, experience exploration, you know, problem in the middle of nowhere, aliens, the whole theme was better suited for me than just some guy who got mixed up with a fly, and then I got to watch it for an hour and a half. Um, All right. Well, we are... Storyline. We're out of time for this episode. We would love to know what you thought of the thing and the fly, Uh, who of us you agree with, and uh, if you didn't like the thing, too, you could let us know why at don'tsplitup.com or at facebook.com slash don'tsplitup. Uh, next time, we will be reviewing the new film from Sam Raimi, Don't Breathe. It comes out in theaters Friday, August 26th, so we'll get an episode up as quickly as we can. In the meantime, make sure you go out and check that out. And then in September, we're going to be in the woods. We're going to be finally visiting the Evil Dead franchise and, of course, the highly anticipated new Blair Witch film. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, make sure to rate and review us if you have a chance at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's the best way you can help any podcast that you listen to and love. And until next time, whatever you do, don't split up. Join J.R., Stacey, Amanda, and Mo to discuss blood, guts, horror, and gore in our podcast.
don't split up where we discuss horror movies and how great or not they are because as you know in every horror movie the first rule of survival is never leave your friends so don't split up if you want to make it to the end no don't don't split up this place is huge. No one take the back porch. Scream if you see anything. That won't be hard. But in observation of this loaded moment, I am not in favor of splitting up, nor am I three days from retiring. I will not be right back.